Pretty sure my mom sang that to me in nursery Bible class growing up. That and uh, oh, I love to pat the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. That's kind of creepy as an adult. It's a little weird. I get it for kids. Like pat the Bible, don't chew it or rip it. Like it makes perfect sense if you're a toddler. But like as an adult singing that, I love to pat the Bible. Like yeah, just it takes on a different kind of uh, flavor. All that said, uh, I love the Bible. Uh, I grew up on the Bible uh, in kids' classes. Some of my my adolescent memories are of Bible Bowl. I don't know if anybody else did. The old Bible Bowl. Kara gave you a good eye roll for that one, yeah? Yeah. We, uh, we do Bible Bowl, which if you're not familiar, um, you spend... Months and months studying every detail of a particular chapter or text in the Bible. I remember in, in particular one Bible Bowl training where we were in Romans. I think it was just one through eight for like six months. And every week you're going over I mean, just every little detail, trying to memorize random facts or notice all of the obscure details of the text, memorizing names, memorizing verse locations. And then the time comes when you go to the Bible Bowl competition where all of the children who have studied the Bible in this way for many, many months come together in some church gym and there's long tables and each table uh, has four seats for your team because everybody's on a Bible Bowl team and in front of you You have this cube, at least you did at my Bible Bowls. You have a cube with either one, two, three, four, or A, B, C, D, and you sit down, and at the front of the room they had this overhead uh, projector thing. Remember those with the transparencies? And they would put transparencies on and pop up questions related to whatever you'd study, like Romans. And you'd go through question after question after question, you know, securing your your answer for everyone in the team that, or the teams that got the, the highest points, the most right, would win gold or silver or bronze or first or second or third. That's one of my... Like, that's what I did as a kid. Like, I studied all the details, at least the English version of um, the Bible for uh, LTC, Leadership Training for Christ, was the thing we did it through. Now, I remember going to college... And not sure what I wanted to do with my life. You know, my dad was a preacher. And so we weren't wealthy by any means. We were probably lower middle class. And so I thought to myself, well, I think like attorneys or engineers, what makes more money than that? Like, I think I probably want to do that instead. So I went to college kind of wanting to explore that. And the the thing that I learned about myself in that first year is the thing that I loved more than anything were my classes about the Bible. 
I loved learning about the Bible. I just did. And, and learning at a different level. I mean, these are guys, uh, professors who knew the original languages. They knew things about the Bible that even after all of my years of studying for trivia purposes, I couldn't, I couldn't have imagined. They just blew my mind and I fell in love in a new way with the, the, the text of scripture. Um, I have this long-standing relationship with the Bible. So I became a Bible and religion major. And then I went to seminary and studied the Bible for four more years after that. And now I'm in a doctoral program where I'm studying the Bible some more. I, me and the Bible, we go way back. I love the Bible. Um, the Bible is an important part of the Christian faith. Um, it mediates to us the story of Jesus, the story of God, and yet it functions in different ways for different people and groups. And you've all seen it. For one person, it justifies why we should have harsher immigration policies in our country or why we should follow whatever the government decides and tells us to do. For another it justifies the exact opposite, uh, more hospitable and gracious immigration policies, for instance. And, and more than just at the level of policy and belief, uh, the Bible historically has served at the level of action to justify the most amazing, inspiring human things that have been done. Uh, acts of hospitality, hospitals were birthed out of people who read the Bible. Our institutions, our great helping institutions, many of them, came out of people who read the Bible. But at the same time, on the other hand, it has given birth to horrific evil. Like, let's, let's be honest about that. It justified the doctrine of discovery that European male leaders used to say it is our God-given right to conquer and overcome and subjugate the people that we find wherever we go. And that's the thing about the Bible. It is, it is, it's fascinating and alarming, uh, all at the same time in that way. That it is, it's, it's capable of inspiring such great good, but also some really horrible things that people justify by using the Bible. Um, it's obviously an important part of who we are in the storyline community. I mean, we read it every week. Uh, we talk about it in our gatherings. Um, and thus, the series, because of all of these uh, things, because of all these dynamics, because of our cultural moment, um, this series we're calling the B-I-B-L-E. Spelled it right. Um, where, you know, in three weeks, we're going to say all there is to say about the Bible. Right? Um, no, we're going to discuss three questions, and we're going to discuss them very limitedly. Um, today, we're going to talk about what is the Bible. And then next week, how do we read or interpret the Bible? And then um, in week three, Sarah is going to lead a conversation about what do we do with the Bible. Um, we're not going to answer them for all time in 30 minutes, 
Um, but we hope to generate conversation and shared understanding. Many of us have already been talking about the Bible, like kind of on a meta level, not just like Bible study, but in our formation discipleship groups. Some of you have been having conversations, reading books about the Bible. And so I, ho- I haven't read all those books. So I hope that this draws out some of the collective wisdom that you've gained through those conversations so that we can learn and grow together. Like, how do we read and interact and relate to the Bible in ways that make us better people, in ways that, that, that are healthy and good, in ways that are faithful and help us to become more like Jesus? Uh, I'm curious for your feedback. Uh, either one of two ways you might want to respond. Uh, what, what is the Bible to you, one? Or, what has the Bible been to you? Um, if, if that's too personal, what, what have you observed the Bible's been to other people? What, what is the Bible? What's the Bible? What has it been to you or to other people? Charles, for me, uh, it's the scene which I've spent all my life. I mean, it's very, very similar. Yeah, very similar to your situation. I wasn't ever, I never did Bible ball ball. Uh, oh, would, you would have been great. I would come home as a teenager, and I was doing things I shouldn't be doing late at night. I would come home, my father would be waiting up, not for me, not for me. One o'clock in the morning, he'd be sitting in his easy chair reading the Bible. And he would say, hey, come here, come here, come here. I, I'm reading this passage in Isaiah, and I'm trying to figure out what this is saying. What do you think? Leave me alone, Dad. I want to go to bed. No, seriously. I'm, I'm curious. What is this? And he'd keep me up another hour. You know that when I asked my father as a child, read me a scary story. He would pull out the Book of Revelation. <laughs> I ain't. Who needs Harry Potter when you got Revelation? <laughs> the beast and the dragon. And all yeah. I mean, he would try to scare my socks off. Uh, but no, that I ate, lived, and breathed as a child all the way through it all. Uh, and frankly, and I'm a literary nut anyway, so frankly, it has become just not just a fascinating thing for me, but it's some, something that I'm always rediscovering something new mm-hmm. uh, every time I read it, mm-hmm. uh, every time I read about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's good. Everything. Thank you, Daryl. I think for me growing up, <clears throat> it was a book of rules, and I think that's why I rolled my eyes. <laughs> and Bible Bowl. That was a reinforcing thing. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, Sorry to call you out on the eye roll no, there. No, I'm sorry. I have strong feelings about it. You'll hear about it in my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I reference it all the time. Um, but it was a book of rules, and it was a way of like how do I attain to get closer to God. Mm. And I think as time has gone by, and as I've gone through my own deconstruction journey, it's more of um, like a guide mm. of reflecting on discovering the character of God mm. and how God sees the world and how he God interacts in the world and how we should interact in the world. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Kira. I think it was a it was a reference book. It was to be treated the same as like an encyclopedia. So if you had a question in life, you know, especially one that my parents probably didn't want to answer or were uncomfortable with, it was definitely like, well look at the Bible. You know, like it was a it was a I don't know how to deal with this situation with my friends 
And it was always like, well, you can find the answers in the Bible, you know. So Bible Bowl was so awesome to me because then I knew actually where to look. You know? <laughs> they wouldn't give you references. They'd be like, like, go look in that big yeah. book. Yeah. And so now I'm like, yes, yeah, I'm learning about the different books. So now when, you know, a, a friend is mean to me or I'm dealing with a situation in junior high, I'll know where to look in the Bible to get the answers. Yeah. And I... Obviously, I don't feel that way now. I, I don't. I don't use it as like a reference book. But piggyback on what you say, and us doing our Bible study or our formation group on Inspired, I think it was great the way she voiced. Instead of looking for yourself in the stories, like we're taught to be like, are you like David? You know, what are you doing with your Goliath? You know, instead of putting yourself in that Bible story, all you're doing is looking for God. Where is God? Where is God being in this story? Mm. What does this story tell us about God's character? Mm. And that was such a different. That was that was eye opening to me because I, that's opposite of what I was taught to do. I was taught to make it about me. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you, Lauren. One more. I think very similar to that was the answer book for me. Like, uh, especially where I grew up. Um, we've read it and we've come to all the conclusions you need. Like, um, you know, if you want to know about this issue, well, here's the obvious answer. Like, obviously this is right. Obviously this is wrong. Like, this is what this says. And I remember the moment in junior high when I had a friend who hadn't been baptized and she thought she was going to heaven because she read something in Romans about, you know, just calling on the name of the Lord will save you. And I just remember being like, how could she be so wrong? Like, and then, but then, like being really confused, of like, but it does say that, like, and that was really the first time for me. I was like, maybe this is muddy and not, like, you know, like we've read this and we have all the answers. And I feel like I grew up in a fairly healthy church system, but there was still this sense of we've read it and interpreted it, and here's we'll give you the answers more and more as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. The I I think that's very much um, that's a cultural product. That's a that's a cultural expression of the. Where we are in history, the modernity that we're within, or at least partly within, to say, obviously, this says this. Um, in the moment, you can't see that that is, that part of that, that is influenced by these larger cultural factors, but it very much is, because to say that is problematic. Um, as you found out on the ground, like um, it's not as obvious. Um, or else we wouldn't have these divergent uh, readings and actings out of Scripture like we discussed at the very um, front end. We'll talk more about that next week when we talk about interpreting um, the Bible. But yeah, that's to say, well, clearly Scripture says this. Like, um, there, There's some, a lot of hubris in saying that. Um, but it is, we're, that's a product of our cultural... Um, so what I want to do in the limited time that I have is just to offer three images of Scripture, um, what it is and, and how it functions, and um, and then get you to respond to those. And maybe there are other images. Oh, sorry, buddy. Thank you. Um, maybe there are other images that you would like to um, add or share that have been meaningful to you. So uh, image number one, when we talk about what what is the Bible... Um, image number one is library. The Bible is a library. 
at the base level, at the most the descriptive, like mundane level. The Bible is a collection of writings. It's not just a book. It is a unified book, but it's a book of books. It is, it's like walking into a library and you see uh, the Torah and the prophets and uh, the gospels and the letters and the historical books. You, you see the books on the shelf the way that you would in a library. In the Old Testament, we've got 39 books. The New Testament, 27 books, at least in our post-Reformation version. There are Catholic and Orthodox Bibles that have some additional books called the Deuterocanonical books or the Apocrypha. These are books that were kind of written in between the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't. Go and check out Baruch sometime. Uh, Or Maccabees sometime. There's some interesting stuff. There's been quite a bit of debate and conversation historically about do those count or not count? Some people think they do. Um, But mainly, uh, the, the conversation was do these point us to God? Do these tell us about who God is? Old Testament consists of the Torah or the law, the the Pentateuch, uh, Penta 5, those first five books of the Old Testament. And then you have the prophets, which include, if you're, if you're Jewish or Hebrew, uh, they include the historical books like Joshua and Judges. They also include the more poetic, oracle kind of prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And there's also... Uh, what um, what they call just the writings, which is like everything else in the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes, things that doesn't that, things that don't necessarily fit in the category of prophets or law of Pentateuch. In the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, the first four. You've got the letters, like that Paul wrote to the the early church. You've got uh, you've got history work in Acts that Luke wrote. Um, all different types of literature in the Bible. Uh, Almost half of the Bible is narrative. And then next up is poetry. How often do you read poetry? I read poetry approximately never. Um, Maybe like once a month uh, it pops up in my little book of daily prayer. Um, But that's like 25% of Scripture is poetry. Um, the rest is like what we're accustomed to in our modern frame, prose and discourse, like the letters in the, the New Testament. It's more descriptive. Um, each of those types of literature, for you literary folks, you know good and well. There are different rules for reading pro- poetry than there are for prose, than there is for, for narrative. Uh, there's, with all of this different literature, it, it, the form itself communicates something in and of itself. Um, if you want to learn more about some of this just base level Bible as library stuff, uh, I would suggest the Bible Project if you haven't checked it out yet. It's fabulous. Fabulous little two, three, five minute videos that are animated and they kind of walk you through in an attention grabbing kind of way some of these more mundane details about the Bible. They bring it to life. Um, And there's a lot of other good stuff about the Bible there too. Um, I love it, you know, because I'm a Bible nerd.
I, I came out of, like some of you, the American Restoration Movement uh, or the Stone Campbell tradition, uh, Disciples of Christ, Independent Christian Churches, and Churches of Christ all come out of this American Restoration Movement. And the founders of the American Restoration Movement, one of them uh, was Alexander Campbell. And one of the dominant images that he used for the Bible was Constitution particularly for the New Testament, that the New Testament is the constitution of the church. Sounds like a harmonica, doesn't it? It's our house speakers, I bet, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. But to uh, plow through. Um, where were we? Alexander Campbell. Uh, so he would say, like, and he, he's, uh, he's American. Oh, there is a, yeah, you can power it there. Thank you, Paul. He's, he's uh, early 19th century, so the American project has just started. The Constitution is pretty new. And so it's very relevant um, to say the Bible is like a Constitution. It's like our law as Christians, and you heard in some of the comments, like Lauren was saying, or, and Kara, like this is a rule book. Um, this this sense of the Bible being a rule book, or like the Christian law, or the, God's law for His people. Well, there is a part of the Bible that contains a law that was uh, helpful for the people of God for a while. Um, but to say that the whole Bible is that, um, you can't say the Bible's a library with these diverse kinds of literature and say that it's a constitution. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it's not. Like, there's some constitution-like elements within the Bible, like in the, in the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the beginning of the Old Testament. Um, but the Bible is not a constitution. It's not a law book. It's not a rule book. Uh, that's not the genre. Um, it's a library. It's a collection of diverse writings. The second image that I want to offer is that of witness. Scripture is a witness. Now, this is one of my favorite frames. And it comes out of the John text that we read. Uh, verse 39 of chapter 5. Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders that you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These religious leaders had their faces in the book. They knew all of the details of the book. They thought if we get the book right, uh, we will have eternal life. We'll be good with God. And they developed hundreds and hundreds of laws and policies out of the book because they thought that's what it meant for them to, to live the good life. And Jesus kind of course corrects them or challenges them. They don't really get it. But he corrects them to say, no, the, the point of the book, as you have said, is to point to God. It points to me. If you, if you get in the book and you miss God, you miss the point of the book. The book is not an end in itself. The book testifies. It's a witness to God. Scripture is a witness it points to God. It connects us to God. It helps us to hear from God. It points to Jesus so that we can know Him and be like Him. Think about what a witness is. A witness is secondary to the truth. 
Does that make sense? Like if, if you're sitting on a stand, somebody's asking you about something you saw. Uh, your role as a witness is to describe something beyond yourself. The truth does not reside inherently within you by yourself. It resides in your ability to recount, to witness, to point to something beyond yourself. That is the function of the Bible. The Bible is a witness to revelation. It is revelation to the extent that it points to God. It points to what God is up to in the world through the exodus, through the exile, and chiefly through the person of Jesus. More than anything else in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Word of God, not the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God to the extent that it points to the Word of God in Christ, in Jesus, the Word of God, in the acts of God in history. Uh, it, it, it brings the Bible down a notch in what I think is a really healthy way to say that the Bible is not the chief revelation. Uh, Jesus the Christ is the chief revelation. And the Bible is kind of a... That's why we don't worship the Bible. That's why the Bible is not a holy book to us in the same way it might be for other religious traditions. Because the Bible merely is a pointer. It's a, it's a signpost. It points to what God is and what, who God is and what God is up to. Scripture's authority is also secondary. Um, because who has authority? Does the Bible by itself have authority? No. And, and this is tricky. I think part of what we've done with the Bible is we say, oh, the Bible has authority. I can master the Bible. I can have authority. I can exercise authority over you because I have the Bible and the Bible has authority. Well, the Bible, any authority the Bible has is because God... God has all authority. And the Bible has authority. If it, if it does have authority, it has authority to the extent that it points to God, that it channels the authority of God, that it channels the authority that, that God in Christ, uh, that God has given Jesus. Uh, so it's not to say the Bible doesn't have authority. It does. It's not to say the Bible isn't revelation. It is. But only to the extent that it's a witness. It points to. And I would like to say it is trustworthy. There are untrustworthy witnesses and there are trustworthy witnesses. There are unreliable witnesses and there are reliable witnesses. The, the confession of the church through the ages is that in, in the scriptures we have a reliable witness. We have a trustworthy witness. Now, you might not agree with this, uh, and that's okay. I'll poke at you a little bit. Uh, well, well, okay, let, let me pause. I want to say, this is at least part of what it means for Scripture to be inspired, in my opinion. Like it's, it has the breath of God because um, it points to, it evidences, it manifests who God is. Uh, I think that's what it means for Scripture to be inspired. At the same time, this is a human witness. It is written by human authors with the limitations of human perspectives. You might feel differently, but I think we can say Scripture is a trustworthy witness. That's my confession of faith. I find God in Scripture. 
But I think we can say that without saying that the Bible is free of any limitation or, or pedantic errors or anything like that. Uh, and it, you may not agree with that, and that's okay. But it, it's hard for me to read Genesis and the cosmology of Genesis, you know, this ancient cosmology, where, where it's basically like um, the Truman Show. The ancient Hebrew understanding is that we, the world is a dome, and there's this little reservoir for the water where the water comes from. All of this is in the backdrop of the, this poetic expression in Genesis. This is the way people viewed the world. And it was not scientifically accurate. Can we admit that and also say, Scripture reliably and trustworthily reveals God to us? I think we can. I don't have a problem holding those two together. In fact, I think to argue, like to use those power words like inerrancy, or infallibility, um, I think what it does is it polarizes us from folks who would go otherwise to find God in Scripture. Because if, 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 ever, if our whole case is built upon, there's no error at all, and, and some would say, well, we, in the original autographs, the original language, copies, versions, or whatever, because um, we can find some errors in the translations, um, that whole project, I think it just pushes... Searching non-religious people further away. Because the second you find an error, it's like, where does your faith go? Like, uh, the second you find what seems to be a discrepancy, and there are, there are several that you could point to and say, yeah, that, that doesn't exactly fit together. That gospel tells it that way, and that gospel tells it exactly the opposite. What do we do with that? Are we going to build our faith on these pedantic discrepancies or errors? You know, I, I think the Bible's trustworthy in the big picture. I'm okay saying it has human limitations. And it might, it might err on some smaller uh, level of detail. You know, that's neither here nor there. We can feel differently about that uh, and still love Jesus. But remember, I love the Bible too. So I'm saying that as somebody who loves the Bible. And I want to follow the Jesus that I find in the Bible. Um, okay, the third image. I kind of got excited about that one. Sorry. <laughs> the third image. And I, this is predictable. I could not use this as an image. It's story, right? Like, that, that's predictable. You didn't think we could talk about the Bible without talking about a story, right? Um, earlier this year, we worked through the episodes of the story. Creation, crisis, covenant, Christ, church, culmination. That's just one way to slice this, this meta-narrative of Scripture. Um, you could say creation, Israel, Jesus, the church, and restoration, where God creates the world, He calls, God calls a people to God's self to live out the purposes of God in the world. Jesus comes as a, uh, a member of that people to expand the doors of that community to the entire world beyond the Jewish people. And this community of people living by God's power under the lordship of Jesus is anticipating the restoration of all things and working to Toward the restoration of all things in this world. That's the that's the the meta narrative of the story of Scripture. The Bible is a library for sure. There's lots of different micro stories and accounts, but the Bible is also a macro story. It is a a single unifying story that that is held together in that way. And more than that, the Bible is not just a story that happened. Um, it's incomplete. 
on some level. The way that the Old Testament was incomplete until something happened in the person of Jesus that allowed the New Testament writers to start writing about it to say, hey, to be continued here. Like something new is happening that's an extension of the story of Israel and the story of God in creation. It's, it's ongoing. It invites participation like Bastion in Neverending Story, opening that book in the school attic and realizing that he was actually a part of the story, that he was reading in that school attic. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Uh, I, I wish I'd thought of this because this he's just so smart. He says, imagine, imagine that there's this famous play that, that everyone's only heard rumors of. Uh, that, you know, it's like Shakespeare-esque. Like some of the best playwriting uh, that has ever graced the planet. And it was lost. And it was gone for a long time. And then we found it. We found this great play and it came in four acts only. The last act, the fourth and final act, the last half of the last act was, it was fragmented. We, we couldn't make it out. We had in completion these, the first uh, three and a half acts. No, first four and a half. How do you say that? First, first three acts in total and the half of the fourth act. I'll say it that way. But we didn't have the end of the play. That's what I'm saying. Okay? And so, I mean, we, this is a play that needs to be seen. This is a play where uh, we'll, we'll be better humans for seeing this play. We've got to bring this to the public. And so what do we do if we're the, the playwrights and the actors? We improvise. We read the play, we read the acts of the play, we get to know the ethos of the play, and, and we enter into the second half of that fourth act to improvise. Not improvising, not in the sense that we're just doing whatever we want, but improvising in the sense that we are acting in ways that are consistent with what's come before and that are anticipating what would come after. Uh, and and N.T. Wright would say that is kind of like what it means for us to read the Bible um, as a story because we are a part of this fourth act of the church that is unfinished and and what we do in the world is to improvise our role in the story based on what's come in the story so far. And really we could say there's a fifth act, this fifth act of restoration. Like we know where things are heading too. So we can also act in ways that anticipate what's to come and the restoration that God is bringing in the world. We know that because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is a picture. It's a, it's a foretaste of what's going to happen to the whole world and to us. Isn't that interesting? This, this idea of improvisation. That's part of what it means for us to relate to scriptures. If the scriptures are a story, then they aren't a blueprint. That's another image. Like, oh, the, the, the scriptures are a blueprint for restoring the church and the Christian faith. They can't be a story in this way and be a blueprint. They aren't basic instructions before leaving earth. Audio adrenaline. Right? Like, that, that, I mean, that's a cute acronym, but that's not how the Bible functions. It, it's not as clear cut as that. It's not like, do this. It's not a manual for living. 
Um, it, it is a story that invites us to improvise and to be a part of the spirit of that story of what God is doing in the world. It invites us into the mess of figuring out how to become a part of it, how to become like Jesus and to live it out. If that's the case, maybe it's less important that we memorize every detail of the Bible or be good at Bible trivia or be able to recite all the books of the Bible. Though there is benefit in knowing that. Um, But maybe it's more important to focus on the kinds of people the Bible is helping us to become. There are lots of people in this world who are not literate, who look uh, like Jesus in really remarkable ways. Not because they know the details of the Bible, but because they know the ethos of the story, and they're living it out. I want. I would. I would prefer that any day. I mean, I love my background and my upbringing and Bible Bowl and all of that. All of that's great. But if we miss the transformation um, to the neglect. Of information, uh, or if we miss if we miss that because we've been so immersed in the information, which is possible, we see it all the time. I, I think we miss something. That's not what I want to do. That's that's not how I want to spend my life. That's not how. I, uh, if that's how the Bible functions, I think I'll move right along. I'm not sure I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm not sure I see God at work in that. You study the Scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you have eternal life. And the whole time, they're testifying about Jesus, about God, the, the very source of eternal life. I think that's to miss the one that the Scriptures witness to. So, uh, this whole conversation about improvisation um, anticipates our next couple of questions about how we read the Bible, what we do with the Bible, um, because there are better and worse improvisations, depending on how we interpret the Bible. It's not sufficient to say, as we talked about earlier, that we should just read the Bible and do what it says, because colonization and slavery, for instance, happened because European males read the Bible and tried to do what it say, do, do what it said, and they, they read the Bible wrongly. In my opinion. Um, I'm going to stop. Namaste. Um, Love you, Julie. What grabs your attention this morning? What, um, which of these images is meaningful to you today? Or what would you like to poke at? Duncan, what you got? I think I like respect and the normality I think I think uh, I do see it a little bit different on two issues. Right on. So um, you said the, the witness is secondary, um, and I would agree for the most part. But I would say that it is a story about a story about a story, right? And so the witness that we give is self a self revelation of God through the person of Jesus. So God is telling the story of God. The Father is telling a story about himself. Um, he does that through the person of Jesus to convey. And then that witness of his self-revelation is witnessed by people who write are witnessed by witnesses. So you have this yep. chain. And, and I think some, um, some misconception and, and mistake can be introduced. But I would also push back and say um, that if you look at the genre of the time, they weren't interested in getting numbers right. That's a modern look back. And so if we look back at, at 
New Testament writing and expect them to have the same numbers or the same order of events, yep. then we're missing the genre. Yep. Um, That's my, right. my second pushback uh, would be on the issue of the I have that memory. God, my second question. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me uh, so good. let me respond to your pushing and say uh, I appreciate those pushes, and I I think I would push in those same ways. Um, to say that Scripture is a witness to a witness to a witness is not. To, I mean, I I want to say that Scripture is God breathed. Yeah. That that God is in the witnessing to the witnessing to the witnessing. Okay. Um, but what I want to avoid is bibliolatry. Which I, I kind of grew up flirting with that, where we worship the Bible, and we, we put the I love the Bible. We put the Bible on this pedestal, and and we uh, uh, inadvertently the Bible like becomes this extension of us that deifies us and our interpretations, and then we go and lambast people with it. We right. hurt people. I mean, that's the baggage that I come to the text with. Yeah. That's what I want to avoid. But I don't want to avoid that at the expense of saying that God is not in Scripture and breathing through Scripture the story of Jesus in the world. I, I think God is, certainly. Um, and I think you're exactly right that some of what we would mistake for errors in Scripture are actually the assumptions of our cultural constructs. That we think that's, that's an error in the cosmology there. Well, we're making that assumption based on our own cosmology, right? Um, or or uh, things that didn't matter to the gospel writers that matter to us. We're holding against them something they would never hold themselves against. Or their peers, you know. And I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and then I would say that we have to look at what story is for. So while I agree with them, then that's, while I agree with, with your, your intent, I think you saying that the Bible isn't a blueprint misses that some of the point of story is to be a blueprint. Some of the point of story is to be constitution. Some of the point of now I think when we simplify that's always when we where we push out um, the the nuance of the Bible and the, the liveliness of the Bible that it can be diverse in objective. Um, but it can be uh, we, we are intended to imitate parts of the Bible if we get the, not to go to the original scripts, but if we get the point of what that 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 author was trying to say to his original audience, some of that narrative is supposed to be imitated. Some of it was never intended to, and that's why we get, we get messed up. Yeah. Um, but I think you have to start to, to look into what is the point of story? What are we trying to accomplish? Why did God use narrative to convey this instead of giving us mostly discourse? Why did he give us poetry instead of instruction alone? And I think part of that comes to exactly what you were saying, is that we are intended to improvise. That it is because the Bible is supposed to breathe, mm-hmm. because it's supposed to expand, mm-hmm. the, the more specific you get, mm-hmm. the more easy it is to make it into, if you do this and this and this, you earn your salvation. Yeah. As opposed to just breathing with the, the Bible and having to wrestle within yourself mm-hmm. what real humanity looks like. And so I would say that the dual purpose of the Bible is both about um, 
who God is, right? That's primarily what it's about. But then I think underlying that, it's about what it means to be real and actualized human. And those things are coupled. So it's about a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's about the relationship of God to man, not just God self-revealing, but He self-reveals into context. No, that's right. I like that. I think you're right. That that narrative is one of the only formats that's robust enough to allow for that kind of improvisation. Like uh, prose discourses can be too specific for uh, um, I don't know the the freedom in different contexts that we need to discern by the Holy Spirit what God is calling us into. Um, in the future, Daryl. Um, I love the NT Rock analogy. Yeah, so good. So good, you know, and it really rips me to do things in those things first. <laughs> uh, but I've gotten to where I appreciate Greg Boyd. Yeah. Uh, recently, and um, he went to he went to Princeton, I believe, with Bart Ehrman at the same time. Yeah. You know? And Bart Ehrman, maybe y'all know Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar who's, I think, basically atheist yeah. at this point in time. Um, and he's written a ton of stuff that's really attack-oriented. Not, not nasty attack, but just, you know, he doesn't believe in liability in the New Testament or the New Testament Gospels. And Boyd did a YouTube series uh, a few years ago called Bart Ehrman Doesn't Have to Ruin Your Christmas. But he made a comment. He said, you know, I was in school with Bart and Bart came from a fundamentalistic background to where these discrepancies, you know, yeah. with us, just destroyed his faith. Yeah. He said, he said, I couldn't understand why they did. He yeah. said, I, I didn't, I saw them too, but I didn't see how that, why should that destroy your faith in any stretch? Yeah. And he made a great comment. And I got one more after that. He got a great comment. He says, I do not believe in Jesus because I believe in the Bible. I believe the Bible because I believe in Jesus. Mm. And Jesus says that it's a good testimony. Mm. So that's, you know, I think, you know, instead of getting the corpse before the hearse, it means the you know, yeah. other way around. Um, I remember watching the book of Eli. And this is the second thing that... Denzel, book of Eli? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and... Carnegie is the villain, you know, in, in this area. And I remember him screaming out, it's not a book, it's a flat man. I've seen it before. You know, it happened before, it will happen again. Mm. You know. And it's and that's that view mm. of I can use this to destroy yeah. or I can use it to build. Yep. That's good, Daryl. Sarah. I had so story and narrative are used because they are easy to transmit oral cultures. Mm. So they don't just transmit uh, blueprints or the way things are supposed to be. They transmit the way things happen. So when we hear a story about jail driving the tent peg through sister's forehead, we don't urge simple. We don't say, and that's the blueprint for what you're supposed to do. It's like, that's what happens. Yeah. story form is because it was easy to transmit reliably, consistently mm-hmm. from generation to generation. And so the fact that it's written down does not, like it changes it for us because we're yeah. at risk, but the purpose of it originally was 
a transmission of your heritage and of your past, um, which is also one of the reasons that if you think about Genesis being in a narrative form, it's in that form because it is easy to remember and it is it stirs your heart, your mind, and your imagination, and God's like telling you, this is what I did. Um, mm. So that's part of I think why he uses narrative so much. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is that improvisation scares me because if you look at Game of Thrones, they had a lot of materials with George R. R. Martin and they took it way off the end at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and like it can go terribly bad, even though you're like, surely they're almost there. Yeah. But no. And so that's the I kind of look and I'm like, man, I I guess I don't. Ugh, it kind of. I mean, I, I get that Jesus is like trusting us, but you're just Well, and it, it is nervous-making because we can look behind us in the past and see how messy it is yeah. and, and how divergent paths it, it has gone. Um, I want to cling to that, and I see this, or well, I could geek out about this, but I, like the author of the story, if it's our conviction that the author of the story indwells not only us individually, but communally, that there's something about what we're doing in this room even that God sharpens us. And you know, I'm, I'm noticing this too. In um, We rewatched Harry Potter on vacation and we rewatched Ready Player One. I don't know if anybody's seen that. But the, the crescendo of these stories is the divestment of individuals' power. Harry breaks the Elder Wand. Um, Real Player One, uh, what's that guy's name? Wade. Um, he he decides not to take sole ownership of this company. Instead, invested in a team of people. Who are, this move toward plurality and like like divesting ourselves of power and depending on each other to discern together what is good and right. I think part of what we get in trouble is if we if we don't have everybody in the room together, we don't have diverse perspectives in the room together. Uh, a bunch of white males can think up pretty horrific evil things to do to the world using the Bible. Um, we we need uh, this collective communal kind of discernment by the Holy Spirit. I was going to say with improvisation because not only was I a Bible world nerd, but I was also a theater nerd. When with Game of Thrones, a people, a group of writers decided what was going to happen in the rest of the story. They decided, and then the actors acted that out. With the improvisation at the end of a play, there are no right, there are no, there's not a group of people that are writing. And then we have to act that out. At the end, if they're doing what N.T. Wright said, it's the actors who in a safe space, which is what improvisation is, together have the past in their head of what happened in the three acts, three and a half acts before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the point of improvisation is to use each other. You can't do it alone. You cannot improv alone. Mm-hmm. You have The whole point is to rip off of each other mm-hmm. and use each other mm-hmm. in community. So... You're not going off of someone else's script and just acting that out. You're going off of each other, and you're using each other's strengths. Mm. And and a lot of times you choose people to improv with that you know are going to lift you up and are not going to leave you hanging. Mm. Um, you need somebody that's going to lift you up and use your strength, and they know your strength, and they know you're really funny at this, so they're going to throw that volleyball at you. Mm. Um and that's true improvisation. Mm. So I wouldn't compare it to the end of Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't watch it, but I saw the discourse that happened on the internet. <laughs> I hope that's not how it goes. And like you said, we cannot give it to someone to say, we trust y'all, mm-hmm. you are scholars, 
please write the rest for us and we'll just do what you say. Yeah. That's not what NT Wright is saying and that's not the true yeah. form of improvisation. That's so great. At the end, we have a picture of what it is. Uh-huh. Right. We do. So we've got our history and we've got an end. Yep. We've got to figure out how to get from here to there. Yep, that's right. We're not left without an end. That's we right. Yeah, we know where it's heading. Yeah, we've got to work our way there. That's and right. it has to make sense to use past to future. Mm. To connect it. And I think there, the problem has been that we have lived life being concerned with just the end. Whatever we think that is. Mm. Like getting our butts into heaven kind of thing? Yeah, mm. yeah but like, that's like, not the thing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, where we are right now matters. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, and it does matter what our conception of the end is. If the end is some disembodied state, the world is destroyed, and our afterlife has basically nothing to do with where we currently are, that 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 um, changes how we improvise, right? Like a lot of people kind of just do whatever the heck they want. If, in that case, if it's about getting to heaven after this and it doesn't really... I mean, if all this is going to get burned up, who cares? But if the, if the prayer of Jesus is that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that's a game changer. Like that, that end, that, that vision, change, that influences our improvisation. Because like, now we're trying to improvise our way into God's will being done on earth in every nook and cranny and crevice. Um, I can get out of bed for that. I don't have to check out or escape or just do some do whatever I want until heaven time. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, so we've gone really long. This is a fabulous conversation. Um, I'm going to improvise on mission prayers, and I'm just going to pray. I'm going to say a prayer, um, and then we'll do next steps so that we're not here until you know the middle of the afternoon. Uh, I love you all. Thank you for um, hear my heart in this. Some of the, some of these thoughts about the Bible. I mean, I'm I have some influences, but like I'm I've never really worked out kind of some of the language here. And you see, you hear some of the language being worked out. So thank you for your patience and your grace and helping me to kind of tune some of this and see if it makes sense and is helpful for us as a, a community. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, being active and alive and at work in the world and in the church and within us. Um, Thank you for not leaving us without witnesses who can point us to you and who can point us to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for for being the, the center of the story and the way that you're the king, the way that you're the center of the story, not not by by grabbing power and, and coercing and dominating, but by pouring out your life in love. Um, I'm just taken by you every time. And I'm, I'm so thankful to get to discover you anew, uh, week in and week out as we look at the story, as we return to Scripture. Uh, God, would you give us grace in your Holy Spirit to read the Bible well, to interpret it well, um, to, to see love as the fulfillment of this great story, and to know um, how to improvise in ways that honor you and that are consistent with who you are and who Jesus is. 
is. We cannot do it by ourselves. We need each other. We need you. God, have mercy. Help us in this. And help us to grow as we talk together about how we interact with the Bible. More than that, help us, God, as we seek to to live out this great story in our world today, in our city, um, in, uh, in, in a world where there are mass casualties and shootings and, and, and immigration debacles. God, we need to believe that you are renewing the world and that you are at work um, to counter all of that evil and bigotry and to bring your kingdom. And we ask, Lord, would you, would you help us to see you and join you in your kingdom work um, in our neighborhoods this week, in, in our relationships with our coworkers as we're, we're present to them, as we love and, and care for our kids. And as school starts, God, would, would you help us to see your loving impulses all around us and to join you in offering ourselves for the good of others, for the good of this world. In Christ we pray. Amen.